One. And it is a great pleasure to welcome our guest to the show today, man. I've listened to many times in different shows and podcasts over the years because he is a historian of a show business and particularly of comedy. And his latest book is called Outrageous, the History, a History of Showbiz and the Culture Wars. We're joined today by Cliff Nesteroff, who is busy on his book tour. The book just comes out today as we record this interview with Cliff. And I believe he's in New York today. And Cliff, real pleasure to talk to you. How are you? I'm good. I'm sitting in my publisher's office and, you know, I write from California, so I've never been right. in this giant New York City skyscraper. It's incredible. They're located on the ninth floor of the original AT&T building when they were still just a telegraph company. So it is incredibly ornate with these ancient elevators and statues and marble carvings and it's uh very intimidating, actually. But, I, I grew uh, up happy in New York, to be so, here. Uh, I've not been there in a while, but I, I imagine it's still. Uh, if you haven't seen it before, it must really be interesting. <laughs> I mean, it really is the height of commerce, and it makes me feel like a big shot. But then I walk in here, and there's a thousand employees, and none of them know who I am. That's right. right. <laughs> brings me back down to earth. <laughs> well, before we talk about the book, I have to say I, I've enjoyed listening to you. I know you used to go on with, uh, unfortunately, uh, the late Gilbert Gottfried, his great podcast, which uh, I miss a lot, yeah. and uh, several others. But, yeah. boy, that was a lot of fun when you were on with him. Yeah, I miss Gilbert so much. I really only got to know him in the last five years of his life, did his podcast several times i eulogized him uh, live on cnn the next morning which was a hard thing oh, for did? me okay. i'd been on yeah. cnn yeah i'd been on cnn very many times but i'd never been asked to talk about somebody so quickly you know after they had died so i was still a little bit in shock they wanted me on live and so they wanted me for 6 a.m the morning show in new york but i live in los angeles so i had to go to cnn uh, on the sunset strip at 2 30 in the morning yeah. it was just me and a security guard <laughs> And uh, I was on air at three and ahead of time they had asked for photos of me and Gilbert. And I said, yeah, I have those, but I'd rather not put them up on the screen because I don't want it to be about me. I want it to be about him. But they were like, no, it'll establish the context of who you are. And I said, yeah, but, you know, I didn't know him that well. I knew him a little bit from the last few years of his life. They're like, well, they'll understand that. We'll say that on the air. I was like, <laughs> OK, I just don't want it to make it look like I'm exploiting somebody's death, you know, name dropping, making it self-serving. So I go in there, I'm sitting in the green room at 2.30 in the morning and they run a little teaser for my 3 a.m. spot and says, coming up next, Gilbert Gottfried's lifelong friend. <laughs> Speak. I'm like, no, that's what I asked you not to do. But what a anyways, surprise. I miss Gilbert uh, doing a lot. something not quite accurate. A big surprise. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess that's how it works. But yeah, I know I miss Gilbert so much. You know, that guy was just he, pure he was exactly comedy. What, what you heard, right? I mean, that's the way he was off off at Mike too, wasn't he? That, well, that no, character? no, actually, no, it wasn't at all. Actually, really, uh, he had he had three levels to him. He had the screamiest version that when he was on a roll on right, stage the version, doing a right. roast where he was just shouting. Then you had the version of him you heard on the podcast where it was like a conversational version of that voice. <laughs> and then the voice when you got to know him and when he would talk to you in person or phone you, this is how you knew he trusted you or that he liked you. He would call and say, hey, Cliff, it's Gilbert. I had a question for you. And that was his really? real voice. Okay. So he had three levels of the voice. It wasn't that he was really doing 
a fake voice when he did the podcast. He was so used to doing that affected cadence that it flowed naturally. But with his family and with people he trusted, you didn't hear any of that gravelly voice at all. I happened to see the documentary uh, maybe three or four months ago about him. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, he'd already passed, but I mean, I'd heard it came out. I didn't get to see it when it came out, but very interesting guy. Yeah, inter- interesting. And his wife, God yeah. bless his wife. Miss him. <laughs> yeah, she's amazing. Dara's great. Absolutely. Yeah. And his kids are adorable as well. Yeah. 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 Well, anyway, that kind of ties into the book a little bit because he was uh, definitely an outrageous uh, comedian and uh, and he had his uh, share mm-hmm. of, uh, of uh, kind of being written off, right? Going back to the... Uh, even the roast, uh, what, 2001 roast, where he told the famous aristocrats joke, and then, of course, later on, yes. with the Aflac situation. That, that kind of ties into the book's uh, topic, doesn't it? Yes, and in fact, Gilbert is in the book. I wanted to give a couple examples from his career that predated the Aflac duck controversy, because people often point to it as you know a product of our modern times and how people react on social media. But Gilbert got into... Uh, a hot water long before that there's two instances one that's in the book and one that isn't one that isn't in the book it was but it got cut out uh he was appearing on the howard stern show as he often did he was a regular on that program for years and years and years in the late 80s i don't even know how many people remember this but the howard stern show for all its salaciousness was a commercial program they would have commercials and they would have uh, um, uh, music. They would just play regular records, and Robin Gibbons would give the news at the top of the hour. And when Gilbert was the guest, they'd make him sit in on the weather reports and the news, and he would interrupt and make crude remarks that were hilarious. And at one point, Robin Gibbons was giving a news report in the late 1980s and referred to a child that had gone missing, and Gilbert made some sort of incredibly tasteless, hilarious uh, <laughs> comment. And the Howard Stern Show, which was known for salaciousness and outrageousness, lost sponsors <laughs> because of Gilbert's joke. I think the sponsor was Miracle Whip. They dropped their sponsorship because of the comment wow. that Gilbert made during the news. And then a couple of years later, this story is in the book. He was a presenter on the Emmy Awards. It was 1991, and it was on the Fox Network. And the Fox Network was already known for being a little bit racier than the typical networks with shows like Married with Children and The Simpsons. And Gilbert went up there to present the Emmy for best writing in a variety or comedy series. And so he was uh, reading the names of the writers of uh, like Saturday Night Live was nominated that year. And interesting, when you watch the clip, some of the names that he mentioned weren't famous then. They're very famous now among the SNL writers that were nominated who Gilbert read their names off the teleprompter included Bob Odenkirk and Conan O'Brien. But anyways, he goes out there and he was supposed to read off the teleprompter whatever jokes had been written for him, and he completely abandoned the plan. That same week, earlier that week, Pee Wee Herman, Paul Rubens, had famously been busted in an adult movie theater for lewd behavior. And Gilbert carried into a series of jokes about that scandal. And he started off going, I'm so glad Wee Herman is finally off the streets. I feel so much safer. If masturbation is a crime, then I am Al Capone. <laughs> you know, so he goes on this rant of jokes related to the Pee Wee Herman masturbation scandal, and it kills. The audience is howling. 
but in the control room they were going crazy because this was off script so the director was mad the head writer was mad the producers were mad and uh much of middle america thought it was in extremely bad taste <laughs> they're watching this show with their kids and there's gilbert talking about masturbation it created all of this controversy for at least a week the Fox network said Gilbert Godfrey will never be on this network again. The producers said Gilbert Godfrey will never be on the Emmy Award show again. Uh, uh, Michael uh, Medved, a film critic turned sort of evangelical uh, yeah, advocate. Who guy, became yeah. Rush, yeah. yeah, he became Rush Limbaugh's guest host later. He said that Gilbert Gottfried's performance was indicative of Hollywood's addiction to bad taste and contempt for the rest of America. He essentially blamed Gilbert for the downfall <laughs> of, of morality. <laughs> so this was almost 15 years before Aflac Duck. Right. And so that's sort of the crux of this book to demonstrate that all the things that we think are new when it comes to controversy in comedy with people being criticized for things they do or say for people getting in trouble for jokes, that is not a new phenomenon. That is not a product of uptight college students or millennials or even social media or evil liberals. It is consistent with the cycles that we have lived through again and again and again throughout showbiz history and throughout american history yeah and again reading the book i've like you although not to the extent you are because you really uh, dig deep into the history of show business i've always kind of been uh, interested in it but you go back uh, to uh, the turn of the century where uh, uh, even in vaudeville days and then you talk about bob hope was kind of uh, controversial at, at one time on radio i mean that's hard to believe well in the late in the late <laughs> 30s when Bob Hope was on radio that's when he was first starting to make comments about the Democrats and the Republicans yeah. and the jokes honestly were interchangeable they were not specific so if he made a crack about the Democrats that got a laugh he could switch the word to Republican and it would get the same laugh right. they were sort of generic he wasn't targeting people's policies he wasn't personal about it like it is today in political comedy it was very generic he would make jokes about the president's golf game but political commentary and certainly political comedy was largely taboo in those days especially on network radio and TV where sponsors were fitting the bill and did not want to alienate potential consumers and so there were internal memos at NBC saying we're getting complaints can you tell Bob Hope to stop talking about politics mm. Yeah, it's, it's hard to believe that uh, you, know, you, you listen to some of those radio shows. They were great, and he, he was probably the first guy, I guess he and Milton Berle, to kind of develop that quick one-liner, fast-paced style of stand-up mm -hmm. comedy, right? I mean, those are the two guys that you'd say were pioneering in, in that style, but also they, topical. They really, they were definitely progenitors of, of the the sort of stereotype of the stand-up comic, right. the fast-talking guy, the wise-cracking guy. There were other dudes before them in vaudeville but because they weren't on radio they didn't gain the same national recognition so burl and hope did so they get the credit you know yeah. vaudeville at its height if you were a star 
at, at the most, 4,000 people would hear you at the same time. With radio, it was millions of people that would hear you at the same time. So it had a, a greater structure. This also led to instances of joke thieving and thievery because if somebody did a joke on stage and only a hundred people heard it and the guy wasn't on radio and a radio comedian stole it and did it on radio suddenly that joke would be identified with the radio comedian and the next person that person tried to do it on stage the person who had been stolen from he would be the one accused of stealing right. they'd be like oh you stole that from the radio instead of it was the other way around <laughs> And then kind of moving into the 50s, and again, you, you, your book kind of goes back even further than we just talked about, but uh, with this, uh, you know, outrageous, of course, the history of showbiz and the culture wars, people being outraged at what's being said on stage or early radio, television. But I guess the 50s, uh, where, where comedy is concerned, at least stand-up comedy, uh, Lenny Bruce, when he, he's kind of the turning point, right, of, uh, of what we see as comedy is today. Oh, very definitely. Lenny Bruce, even to listen to him, it's very interesting. A lot of people listen to Lenny Bruce today. It doesn't necessarily make him make them laugh, but maybe you're listening to the wrong, uh, um, uh, paying attention to the wrong details because most comedy is not necessarily going to make you laugh out loud as the decades uh, pass by. It stumps, tends to lose its bite. But the thing that's so interesting about Lenny Bruce when you listen to his stand-up is how conversational he is. Right. Before him, guys were basically reciting jokes that they had memorized. But with Lenny Bruce, he had this very casual vibe, this very casual style. He would think on stage. He didn't mind leaving a little bit of space there. He would His mind would wander, and he would meander a bit. Now, at the time, that was seen as unprofessional, but if you were to go to the comedy store in Los Angeles today or the comedy cellar in New York today, that's how most comedians function. Most stand-up comics are extremely conversational. Now, that is neither for better or for worse. That's just what the style is. A mm -hmm. person comes on stage and goes, how are you guys doing tonight? Oh, what, that's a weird sweater. They start talking to the crowd or they take pauses and they go, oh, what else is going on? And there's a rawness there that did not exist in stand-up comedy right. until Lenny Bruce came along. So he definitely helped transform the art form from a very um, by-rote format which, in which comedians, my, my late friend Jack Carter, who was of the old school, oh, I love Jack Carter. he yeah. described them, yeah, he described the comedians of his generation, including himself, as reciters. They just recited things that they committed to memory. Lenny Bruce was not a reciter. He was a new wave. He was the opposite. He was more of a thinker on the stage, and it was less contrived. And that is how stand-up comedy has essentially been ever since. Yeah, I got to see, uh, speaking of Jack Carter, it was a great night of comedy. I, I was living on Long Island. That's where I grew up at a great theater there mm -hmm. called the Westbury Music Fair, and it had a night of comedy, Jack Carter, uh, Freddie Roman, Dick Sean, Joey Adams and uh, Gene Bayless, real old school comics. And it was one of the funniest nights I've ever seen anywhere, but old school, it's great. <laughs> okay, I gotta tell you a story about Jack Carter and Joey Adams. <laughs> I don't think you can use this on local radio, but I hope maybe you can include it on the pot. <laughs> you can hopefully include it on the podcast. But so at the Friars Club 
in New York and in Los Angeles, they would have portraits commissioned of all the great comedians that were members of the Friars. And they had professional oil painters do these beautiful portraits of the comedians posing. And they were very pretentious looking paintings, you know, Jack Carter with a cape strung over one shoulder, you know, <laughs> smiling, painting of Alan King, a painting of Eddie Cantor, a painting of Al Jolson, a painting of Milton Berle, all the greats of show business who belonged to the Friars Club. Joey Adams was always considered sort of a poor man's comic. He was never one of the greats. He was never one of the great Las Vegas headliners. He was never one of the great Ed Sullivan stars. He was always Pretty around. A he wrote a joke column in the New yeah, York Post. Yeah. Right, and he wrote books. So he had other channels of communication, but nobody considered him one of the great comedians, certainly not at the level of a Milton Berle or an Alan King. He knew that uh, all the comedians knew it, but Joey Adams ate at the Friars Club every day and they never commissioned a portrait of him. <laughs> so Joey Adams went out and had a oil painting portrait done of him out of his own pocket. He paid for it. They, he, he got this artist to do this really elaborate Joey Adams painting. He brought it to the Friars Club, hung it up himself, and then would sit at that table beneath his painting every afternoon and eat soup. <laughs> Jack Carter <laughs> saw that, and he comes into the Friars Club and he goes, Joey, I want you to let you know. I want to let you know. Okay, you can sit here beneath that painting. But the day you die, that painting comes right down. <laughs> I can imagine he would say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Joey Adams really, yeah, like you said, he wrote the books. He did a joke column in the, in the New York Post. And uh, I guess he did a little TV yeah. in the 50s. But yeah, but he was not in that league, obviously, of those other guys. But, uh, but he was well, eventually he was in, in New the... York. You know, he was one of those guys. Yeah, W.O.R. Yeah, right. Yeah, he was kind of later on in the shadow of his wife, Cindy Adams, Cindy's who was a very yeah, well-known right. columnist. Yeah, yeah and, uh, and she was also uh, Donald Trump's original booster. That's she right. kind of helped make him famous in New York by writing many columns she, about him back in the late Donald, 70s. I believe, originally in her column. The, the Donald. Wow, yeah. wow. So there you go. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll move up to the more present time, and we'll run out of time. We're talking with Cliff Nesteroff and Outrageous, A History of Showbiz and the Culture Wars is the name of the book. Great uh, kind of historical uh, look back at uh, great comedy, but also uh, what was considered, uh, as the title says, outrageous or controversial or maybe even, uh, you know, politically incorrect. Uh, that term wasn't used back then. But you, you mentioned Howard Stern, and I tend to agree with you, Cliff. I think the show that he did was 10 times better or even more when he was on regular radio than since he moved over to satellite. I think he lost a lot when he went to satellite. Oh. Now it's just unlistenable, at least in my opinion. But I don't know. What yeah, yeah, isn't that ironic? Well, I don't make that argument in the book that the one was worse than the other. I think you're right in the sense the show then was more entertaining. It was more entertaining for me, though, not necessarily because of the salaciousness, but because of the comedians they'd have on. They would have somebody like Joey Adams on, Stuttering John would uh, attack Joey Adams, you know, in the street, and then they would play it on the air, and it was hilarious. And they don't do that anymore. Now they have huge stars. Now, 
you know, if they have a comedian on, it's going to be the biggest comedian. They don't have those low rent comedians on. They don't have elderly people from his childhood, the Soupy Saleses or the Milton Burles. Now it's big, big stars and even big politicians like Hillary Clinton. And it's about promoting a movie. And that not that ironic, though, that on satellite radio, Howard Stern has the freedom now to say whatever he wants and he doesn't. And in those days, under the jurisdiction of the FCC, he wasn't allowed to say anything, but he said them anyways. Well, so right. there is an irony there. And I agree with you that the show probably, well, not probably, it isn't as entertaining as it was back then. Although even for somebody like me, they did things that I found uh, sometimes unnecessarily crass. He could be very cruel to people like Milton Berle right. and many people in their <laughs> twilight years. He really bullied. And it was funny. But then a lot of these people also died. And it, it kind of is heartbreaking to listen to some of that now because, you know, I, I did feel bad when he would bully certain old comedians. Yeah. Hey, another uh, comedian, and you talk about it in the book, uh, a guy that you would think, you know, traditional old school type of comedian, of course, uh, basically invented the Tonight Show, talking about Steve Allen. But uh, back in the 50s, mm -hmm. uh, I didn't realize this till I read your book and then maybe some of his earlier books, uh, you know, you read a little bit about him. He was kind of controversial, wasn't he? Well, yeah, for a number of reasons. You know, Steve Allen was a hip guy in the 50s. He was very interested in jazz music and jazz culture, and he liked to parody beatnik slang. Um, and for that reason, those interests, he often booked a lot of black musicians, which was frowned upon by certain sponsors. They didn't want to upset the Deep South. And uh, on one episode, he kissed Lena Horne on the cheek, right. which was uh, considered a no-no to be a white person on TV, familiar, as the phrase went, with a black performer. And he got all kinds of racist hate mail as a result. And then later, in the late 1950s, when he had the Sunday night Steve Allen show, he started to mention political causes on the air. He was an advocate of an organization called SANE for a SANE nuclear policy, which was advocating for nuclear disarmament. And the John Birch Society thought that this was essentially uh, uh, um, giving the communists what they wanted. They considered Steve Allen a dupe of Soviet propaganda, and they heavily criticized him. And Steve Allen uh, uh, received a flurry of death threats in the late 50s and early 1960s, literally being told that somebody was going to come to his office in Sherman Oaks and blow his head off mm. unless he stopped talking about SANE and advocating for nuclear disarmament. And in fact, the FBI got involved to investigate who was sending all these death threats to Steve Allen. And you can find them on the internet. The FBI has an archive and you can find it on archive.org. Go through Steve Allen's FBI file and read these horrifying, uh, uh, vulgar, vitriolic hate letters and death threats that were sent to Steve Allen, who was only trying to make people laugh. Yeah. And he also wrote a book, I think it was his final book before he passed, uh, about uh, uh, the terrible things that are going on in the media, right? Uh, well, as Steve Allen grew older, he, like so many people, became more conservative. Yeah. And so the organizations that went after him in the 50s and the early 60s were considered uh, far right, the John Birch Society, not even conservative. They did call themselves conservative, but they had some very yeah, they were uh, aggressive good, and yeah, sometimes right. violent uh, tactics. But Steve Allen, like many people, grew more conservative as he 
got older. And I demonstrate that throughout the, the book. There's many arcs like that. Mae West goes from being considered salacious and, and too sexual and immoral in the 30s. And by the 70s, she's saying that Hollywood is too sexual and salacious and immoral. So she also turned conservative. Steve Allen's last book it's very interesting to read just for historical purposes. I'm not sure that there'll be much in it that you'll agree with, but it's so interesting to see his point of view. It was called Bulgarians That's at a, the Gate. And it was that, about, yeah, Bulgarians, right. Yeah, and it was all about how he felt Hollywood was uh, uh, addicted, like Michael Medved said, to, uh, to blue humor and to crassness and to vulgarity. And he criticized Howard Stern as the worst offender but the weird thing is he didn't point to the most outrageous things that Howard Stern said. He criticized the movie that was made, I guess, in 1995 based on the book oh, Private, Private Parts. Yeah. And the thing that disgusted Steve Allen was the title. He hated the title Private Parts. Right. He didn't think <laughs> there should be a movie called that. And he wrote an angry letter to the tabloid uh, gossip show extra because they did a segment on the show and they kept repeating the title private parts private parts and steve allen wrote this angry letter this is disgusting how can you keep repeating the words private parts <laughs> so innocent by today's standards but steve allen was upset with that he was upset with the Farrelly brothers because of the famous scene and there's something about mary right. and he was upset with the sitcom uh that david spade was in called just shoot me all of these things seem so innocuous by today's standards, but they really upset Steve Allen, who I love and I is a too. hero of mine. But he passed away, actually, after he finished writing that book, but before it came out. So uh, Jane Meadows ended up doing the book tour for Vulgarians at the Gate because Steve Allen passed away. Yeah, I had a chance to talk to her. She, she was very nice. I would have loved to talk to Steve. I used to listen to him. He, one of his last shows he did was radio, uh, a radio show in New York on WNEW, and then it went national for a while. Right. Radio shows fun to right. To. You can hear there are some outtakes of that show floating around YouTube from some couple. network yeah, right. feed. Yeah, the last week, I believe. And you can hear him. Yeah. yeah, and there's an episode where the guest is Jim Backus, Mr. Howells oh, really? from Gilligan's <laughs> Island. And it's Steve, yeah, and it's Steve Allen and Jim Backus doing these segments together. But because whoever uploaded it had access to the network feed, you can hear them talking amongst each other during the commercial oh, breaks. Oh, really? Oh, I got to try And boy, that. is that ever interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's just really interesting because Steve Allen's sort of tinkering on a piano, and Jim Backus tones it way down. He's in a conversational voice instead of a <laughs> loud Mr. Magoo voice that he would affect, you know. Uh, but it's fascinating to listen to that stuff, and I love Steve Allen, and sometimes I fear that with this book, in addressing his turn uh, against business in the late 90s that it's going to come across sounding too critical it's not meant to sound critical it's just no. statement of fact i love steve allen yeah, no question well cliff nesterov i could talk for hours on this i enjoy talking about old-time showbiz my, myself my uncle was in show business so i had a little bit of a, a taste of it as a kid he belonged to a club called the lambs club or he actually was the shepherd of that which is kind of like the friars club so uh, really i always got to who see was your uncle those. what's that his name was tom Dillon. He was a singer oh, Tom Bill. I think, like, I thought a lot of the variety shows in the 50s, but uh, he basically, uh -huh. and he, and he uh, worked for the Actors Fund for years, uh, Actors Fund Home in New Jersey. Oh, how interesting. So, yeah, interesting man. But anyway, 
Uh, cool. We'll uh, let you go. I know you're on the book tour. I saw some great articles already today as we talk, uh, record this, uh, about the book. So congratulations on it. Outrageous, a history of showbiz and the culture wars. And uh, I guess anywhere you can get it, right? All the, all the places, all the bookstores and uh, online, right? Yes, yes. It's available everywhere. Thank you so much. And uh, your website, do you have a website you want to give out? or? Uh, no. Okay. You're one of the people who really doesn't have a website plugging a book. <laughs> Yeah. No, I mean, you can follow me on Twitter, but I'm really encouraging people to unfollow me and everybody from social media. Read the book, Outrageous. It's also available on Audible as an audio book. I'd rather people follow me on paper with the book than on the Internet. Let's all get off the Internet. Let's all stop fighting with each other. Let's stop complaining about everything. Let's enjoy comedy. Let's enjoy movies. Let's enjoy books. And let's all get along. And before we wrap up, I have to say I, I've been reading your uh, your old showbiz uh, blogspot uh, interviews. Those are great. You oh do yeah, more of those. You got, you got to put up more. Well, <laughs> you have them. this is. Well, I'll tell you, this is what I want to do because blogspot. I have a friend who's 19 years old, and boy, does she make me feel old. She refers to things like blogspot as old internet. That's right. I'm like, oh, <laughs> but it is the old internet, and it looks old. So what I want to do is I want to take all of those interviews that I have on Blogspot, long, in-depth interviews that I did with people like Sheffy Green and Jack Carter and Will Jordan and Marty Allen and Steve Rossi. Uh, uh, everybody has passed away with the exception of Shecky Green, who's uh, approaching 99 years old. Wow. Um, I want to publish those in a book. Judd Apatow had great success with his two books, Sick in the Head and Sicker in the Head, and they're just transcriptions of interviews with people in the comedy field. So I would like to do a version of that for the old-time comedians who have passed on. All those interviews are available to read on the blogspot, classicshowbiz.blogspot.com, but I want to put them down on paper and get those out as a big, thick, fat book. Yeah, no doubt. And when you do, uh, you know, I'll, your publicist will let me know via email, but I'd love to talk to you at that time. That'd, that'd be great. But in the meantime, of I want to get outrageous. Of course. <laughs> Cliff Nesterov, real pleasure talking to you. I know we kept you longer, but uh, good luck on the rest of the book tour, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Doug.